joy, peace, tranquility, vibrancy, and wellness. Isn't this what you want instead of constant stress? That's what host Rochelle Lawson is going to help you with on Blissful Living. There are many ways to reduce stress, some you may not even know about. Doesn't a little peace and tranquility sound like just what you've been looking for? Relax for a few minutes with Rochelle. She's the queen of feeling fabulous. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blissful Living. This is the queen of feeling fabulous, Rochelle Marie Lawson, and I have a really wonderful show in store for you. It falls under our pillar of wisdom, and my guest is a world-renowned guest, just to pique your curiosity a little bit. And I just want to ask and pose a question to you all before we even dwell into our topic today that falls under the pillar of wisdom is, have you ever thought about, um, you know, your evolution or revolution or the global awakening that's happening all around us right now? If your person has been thinking about that or has become more aware or more in tune or just feel some kind of different vibe that's happening, then you definitely want to stay tuned. And if you're someone that hasn't really thought much about it, but now that I've piqued your curiosity and you want to figure out what we're talking about and what kind of vibe or what you should be paying attention to as you travel down your path to bliss, then you definitely want to stay listening as well. So I want you all to sit back and relax, find a nice place to sit where you can relax, maybe get some paper, something to write with, post up with your favorite beverage, and really allow yourself to engage and enjoy and be fully, I want to say, entwined into the wisdom of Blissful Living in this show that we have in store for you today. Before I introduce the guest, I want to thank our sponsors, Blissful Living for You, holistic health and wellness company focused on helping you to map out and live the life of your dreams, whether it's falls under wellness, whether you want to evolve your mind, or whether you want to accelerate your wealth or keep that which you have built in your pocket, so to speak. You want to check them out at blissfullivingforyou.com. They've got some great things coming up, and um, I'm sure there's something in there for everyone. Also, um, you want to – I want to thank – I'm sorry. I'm all off today. I want to thank our sponsor, All Day Cable Incorporated. They are a telecommunications installation company located in Silicon Valley for about almost 30 years, and what they do is network distribution. They set up your network, your phone, your voice, your data, your fiber, your wireless, your audio, your video systems, so that they work efficiently and effectively the first time you turn them on or plug things in. They set up the backbone of how we communicate today. So if you or you know someone in need of those types of services, then please check out alldaycableinc.com. And with that being said, let me just get to our guest. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Now, The guest is a monk, believe it or not, we've been graced to have the presence of a monk, so very grateful for that. But Monk Yoon Ro 
and that is his name. And the name means soft cloud has been called the new Alan Watts. Now, Monk Hyun Rowe was born Arthur Rosenfield in New York City. <laughs> That's funny, huh? He received his academic background at Yale, Cornell, and the University of California and was ordained as a Taoist monk in, I'm not going to even try to touch this one, China in 2012, host of um, the hit national public television show Longevity Tai Chi. He is the author of more than 15 books, including award-winning novels, option for films in Hollywood and Asia. And in recent years, his nonfiction books offer Dallas prescriptions for the challenges of culture, society, and everyday living, while his novels bring a New York literary sensibility to the emerging silk punk genre, blending Chinese history, science, fiction, and fantasy into rollicking, thought-provoking reads. Doesn't that sound phenomenal? Now, his articles have appeared in Vogue, Vanity Fair, Parade, Newsweek, The Wall Street Journal, WebMD, Fox Business News, and numerous other websites and newspaper. Now, Here's something else that I want to share with you. Monk Yun Ro began his formal martial arts training in 1980 and has studied with some of China's top Tai Chi Grand Masters. And in 2011, he was named Tai Chi Master of the Year as the World Congress on Qigong and Chinese Traditional Medicine. The Action on Film Festival recently chose him for their Maverick Award. Previously, recipients include David Carradine, John Savage, and Talia Shire, and established an award for writing excellence in his name. Now, in July 2014, Yoon Ro was opening and closing, was the opening and closing keynote speaker at the International Tai Chi Symposium in Louisville, Kentucky. And in 2016, the American Heart Association profiled Monk Yoon Ro as an inspirational resource. And with that, my friends, and to you, Monk Yoon Ro, I'd like to welcome you to Blissful Living. Thank you for gracing us with your time today. How are you doing? I'm great, and thank you so much for asking me to be on the show. I appreciate the opportunity to chat. Well, good. It's great to have you, and um, we just look forward into diving more um, into your wisdom and the nuggets of gold that you're going to disseminate upon us. But before we get started, you have this book that you've written, the newest book, um, Mad Monk Manifesto, a prescription for evolution, revolution, and global awakening. And I want to really kind of focus the show around some of the thoughts in, in the book, but I want to ask you, why did you write this book? You've done so many other fabulous things, but why, you know, would you 
want to write something like this, particularly calling it the Mad Monk Manifesto. It kind of gives me a vision of Mad Max or, um, <laughs> you know, the guy, the mad guy from I'm dating myself. But, you know, you probably know who I'm talking about, that mad guy that, yeah, anyways. <laughs> so, well, so let's talk about the word mad, right, because I, I think um, the title of the book, Mad Monk Manifesto, has this alliteration, which I like. I could have said, you know, Angry Monk Manifesto, but that wouldn't have sounded as good, and it would also not have captured quite the fact that it's not just being sort of morally outraged at things that are going on, but it's also being a wee bit crazy. So, you know, Mad is a hatter, um, you know, he, Mad being being a bit nuts. <clears throat> and I think, you know, this book is a prescription that some people have, uh, you know, said is a bit utopian and unrealistic. And, and, and I get, sometimes I get feedback about it saying, well, yeah, you know, these are great ideas you put out there, but, you know, we're never going to do that. or We can't really live like that or nobody's going to be that high-minded or we're not going to act that way. And, you know, my answer to that is why not? So I, I, I guess if people carry the book around in their backpack or their uh, briefcase or their purse and they, it, you know it's not a big book but they take it out and they refer to it at times when they need guidance or inspiration about how to behave in the world and what decisions to make and how to see things differently then I would be I would be honored and delighted to have it play that role in the lives of many people including the folks who are listening now because you know it's one thing to say, boy, oh boy, look at all this stuff going on in the world and look at the rise of totalitarianism and look at the unfairness in the world and the inequities. Look at the way we're destroying our planet, which is probably our biggest issue. Um, mm -hmm. and, and and then just throw up your hands and, and, you know, chat about it with your friends and oh, poor me and oh, poor world. But it's another thing to actually take action. So, you know, what I'm hoping will happen as a result of this conversation is that people will go and buy the book, read the advice that's in it, the guidance, the ideas, and use them, put them into practice in their lives. Because, you know, we want to be the change we want to see, and that's such a hackneyed and cliched phrase, I guess. But there really is no other way to say it. If we want to see things get better in our world, then we have to be the ones that make it better. And all kinds I of yakking totally, about it doesn't help, you know. I totally, totally agree with you. Um, you know, just for you guys out there listening, some of the the topics he discussed in the book are relaxing and rectifying, rebalancing daily life, fostering community and deepening culture, culture, commerce, government, and power, sensitivity and environment, and awakening to spirit and service. And so, as you can see, um, if you've listened to what he just said with regards to, it could be something that you can carry in a briefcase, your pocketbook, your tote bag, your backpack, whatever you use, and pull it out at those moments in time when you may need a little inspiration or wisdom or guidance um, 
you can tell from just what I read to you some of the things that um, he discusses in there it would totally be appropriate for us in our everyday life and something that we can definitely have as our go-to. Now, um, you grew up in New York City. You're Jewish and you grew up in New York City. And a question, I have two questions. The first one is, how does a Jewish kid from New York even become interested in being a monk? So, you know, if you're you're um, you're taking a long train ride, and uh, it's like starting, um, uh, you know, in Miami, and uh, saying, you know, how, how did you get to New York? And you go, you got to go through a bunch of places before you get there, right? So, um, right. What I can say, what I can say is that I think some people are born with a questing. Some people are just sort of seekers, and and what does that mean? I, I guess it means that we're not satisfied with the answers we're being given and the uh, story we're being told about what is important in life, how things in the world really work, in the natural world and in the human world, if we make a difference, distinction. And, mm-hmm. and so, <clears throat> you know, I, I feel like I was, uh, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. My my father was an enormously powerful and famous physician. And his patients were, in those early days of my life, the people who ran the world. They were captains of industry, princes, kings, presidents, uh, Hollywood people, and so on. And these people were in a steady stream through our New York City apartment as I was a kid. And they would come, you know, to my father for help and advice with their health and other things. And one thing I noticed uh, was that even though those people had everything that we're all taught to want, mm-hmm. they were they were the people that we are told we want to be. So they were. Uh, they were the, the rich and famous. They were the beautiful people. They were powerful. They were, were uh, you know, celebrities. And yet, um, the great majority of them didn't seem very happy to me, nor did they seem mm-hmm. to be particularly evolved or advanced people. I remember that, you know, one of them threw his wife down the stairs and killed her. Another one went to jail for tax evasion. Their kids didn't like them. They were depressed. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about everybody. There were some wonderful right. Gems, right. gems of people in that. But, but you know, to a child's eyes, um, you know, they they were not all that. Um, and so when I saw that, I thought, hmm, because I had this sort of seeker personality, maybe a skeptical personality, I thought, well, wait a second. If, if they're supposed to be and have everything we want and we're all told we should be and we should want, how come they're not, they're not happier and how come they're not right. really that great? And so if I, if I thought my next thing was, well, well, hang on, if I'm being sold a bill of goods about that, what other bills of goods am I being sold? What other untruths or half-truths or mythology am I being um, is being foisted upon me in the area Mm -hmm. of you know maybe religion or politics or social issues um, and and economics and other things um, nationalism and patriotism and everything and so you know I, I just started to try to find deeper answers and my mom was a philosophy major in school and she was a student 
of a famous Jewish philosopher called Martin mm-hmm. Buber, and she had a good library of philosophy books, and I was just trying to find answers to questions that didn't, the world didn't seem right to me. And I went into that library and I started reading, and the things that struck a chord with me are the things from Asia. And, of course, I was a little boy. You know, I was 10, 12 right. years old. I couldn't understand them. And, and you know, I, I don't know that some of these things, that some of these texts that I'm referring to are so difficult and impenetrable that even now, um, as someone who's many decades into this study, I can't be sure that I really understand all of them the way they were intended. They're issues of translation and language and and, and context, and they're all from thousands of years ago. Who knows right. what they really meant back then and all that. But nonetheless, um, you know, th- there was something there for me, and I felt it energetically and emotionally. And uh, then, you know, then along came David Carradine's TV show, Kung Fu. Do you remember right, that show? Right, right, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, so, you know, everybody complained that Bruce Lee didn't get the role and that, you know, Carradine's martial arts weren't that good. But I I thought that he did um, a beautiful job of conveying the sort of piece um, of the Shaolin monk. And I remember looking at these flashbacks when the episodes had flashbacks to his monk teachers. Now, I can't tell you that as a little boy, I thought, oh, boy, I want to grow up and be a monk. Um, but, but I did. But I you know I can't. I, I would be lying if I said that. But but I can say that I was much more fascinated by the peace and calm and power of those monks than I was by any other aspect of that really fun program. You know that's interesting so, because I do remember watching the the program. Um, you know, we didn't have a whole lot to watch back then like there is today. But I remember right. watching it. I was, a, you know, a little kid. Um, but you're right. When I watched it, it was, you did. You got a real sense of peace. And, okay, I'm a little kid. Whatever peace meant to me at that moment in time, when I think think of what you're saying right now, and it takes me back to being a kid in front of the TV with my little brother or whatever, um, there was a certain peace that you saw that was disseminated in the monks when the main character would, you know, discuss things or learn things from the monks. So um, I could see um, how someone growing up in New York City, which is, you know, very rushed and go, go, go and fast-paced and, you know, inside your little world, you, you were seeking to find that peace that you probably experienced, you know, when you watched the show, just like I did. And and so you became a seeker, and, and it kind of led you on this journey. Now, with regards to your journey of, you know, um, being a monk and be, or becoming a monk, so to speak, um, there's, you know, there's all different, I, I'm not maybe not articulating this correctly, but there's different types of monks. And you have chose to um, practice Taoism or be, uh, you know, with regards to uh, the Taoist Buddhist. Can you just share with the listeners what um, a little bit about what Taoism is? I don't want them to get lost in as we continue the conversation, but just give them a little bit of background <laughs> of, of what it is. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's a, it's a great question. And, um, I, I'm going to surprise you and the listeners, or I, I think you too, by telling you all that you know much more about Taoism than you know that you know. 
because if you have ever watched Star Wars, oh, you know that you, you know that um, in that world there are these things called Jedi's, and there mm-hmm. are Jedi Masters, Jedi Knights, and that there is a rebellion, and that the, rebe- the rebels are fighting uh, something called the Empire. And George mm-hmm. Lucas, um, who who you know created Star Wars had a great interest in these Eastern philosophies, and he took to make his archetypes, to make the underpinnings of the world that he offered us in Star Wars, he drew upon Taoism. So the empire was the Confucian rulers of China who had all kinds of rules and regulations, and um, there was a lot of structure to their lives. You have to think about those clone warriors, those stormtroopers, thousands of them all lined up looking exactly the same in their white right, uh, right. in their white outfits. And then you think of the um the rebels who were, you know, wearing robes and living in the forest and carrying lightsabers and they didn't shoot anything. They had swords instead and they used their minds and they controlled things with their minds and they had energy and all that. So Taoism is the nature, the the natural religion that you see mm-hmm. when you watch a Star Wars movie. And that's sort of a popular way of looking at it and thinking about it. So American people are actually more familiar with the Taoist idea and the Jedi Knights and their masters and the code and all that stuff. And they know more about Taoism than they think they do because we have Star Wars. So I give nine bows to, to George Lucas <laughs> for that. Super cool. That's very cool. I like. Thanks for that. Thanks for the analogy. Now, when I, you know, look at Star Wars, I'm gonna have a whole different um, perspective, so to speak, with regards to the symbolism and um, the things that happen on in the very Star Wars, Star Wars movies. But okay, so so there you have it, listeners. Now you have somewhat of a background of. Um, the context of Taoism. Now, I want to talk about Tai Chi. And okay. here's, a, here's a funny question. You're going to think I'm a little silly, but it's a funny question, and, and I, I know people out there listening probably think the same thing. Do all monks practice Tai Chi? And, quote, unquote, <laughs> do you have to be a monk to practice Tai Chi? <laughs> Okay, so the link between monks and Tai Chi is is not particularly relevant for um, people's understandings in 2018 in the United States. Um, so what is important, though, is to know that Tai Chi is a martial art. So something happened in translation. You know, there's that movie Lost in Translation. That, that, that things do get, get lost in translation. And and something that happened when American people started to go to China in the late 1970s, when China started to open a bit to the West, um, they would go and they would see these old people doing Tai Chi in the park. They would see them doing these slow movements and they would, they would ask, you know, what is that? And then somebody would tell them, oh, you know, that's Tai Chi. And so the result was that people in the West began to think that this is old, Tai Chi is an exercise for old people moving slowly in the park, communing with the birds and nature. And actually, <laughs> so funny. And, 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 and it's, like, 
I remember seeing someone doing that, and that's and this was like in 1989, and that's exactly right. what I thought. Sorry, not to digress, but yeah. that's funny. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly what everybody thought. And and the but but you see, you were you weren't wrong. You just only had half of the picture, because what people don't know. Uh, when they go to Asia and see this, is that those people that you're watching doing it in the park did not take it up after they could no longer play golf or tennis and, and you know, were sort of bumbling and stumbling around and it was all they could do. They have been doing it since they were three years old. They've been mm-hmm. doing it their whole lives. So it's not that they're doing it now that it's there because they're old. It's that they're still doing it when they're not still doing other things. So actually, Tai Chi was a battlefield martial art. And in the form that we know it now, although it has ancestors that go back thousands of years, it's ancestral practices. It, it, it started in, about, in the way we know it now in around 1600 in a particular family, in a particular village in the north of China. And it was just a, a battlefield system for fighting with traditional Chinese weapons. Spears 12 feet long and halberds, big swords on the end of a long shaft that weighed 100 to 200 pounds. And it was mostly on horseback. And the idea of Tai Chi was you're going into battle, you want to come home to your family, you want to live. So use this art so you don't die. So now when people talk about Tai Chi is for health, I go, yeah. And it was originally for health, too, because, you know, dying is bad for your health. (laughs) Exactly. You want to go to you want to go to war and you want to come home because war is bad for your health. You know? Yes, it is. It's it's bad for your mind, body, and spirit. So, um, okay, cool. Because that's so funny because it's like, oh my gosh, he just took me back to 1989 when you were talking about you know the old people in the park, and it's like, yeah, that's what I would see. Don't see much of it now. Um, don't see much of I should say the people practicing it now like I used to, but. Definitely a beautiful to watch. I'm very methodically engaged with nature and just the ebb and flow of how the movements are done when um, those that practice Tai Chi do it. It's just to me, it's very calming, and um, beautiful to watch. And it's funny because at that time I was um, studying finance or something in a secondary degree, and um, I would watch the guy do the Tai Chi, and it kind of just kind of grounded me and relaxed me, and then I was able to embrace whatever I was studying that I may have been having difficulty um, absorbing the information. So it was just really, it was just really cool. So that's my experience, and um, and I just thought it would be cool for you to share. Now I want to move. I want to kind of like take a little jump forward because I want to really get into. Um, the manifesto and talk a little bit about um, what you say with regards to some of the things in the manifesto. Now, the book does seem, um, as you even said, it's more utopian um, uh, in the context. Um, And you said that sometimes people don't really believe that they can make the changes. With regards to the things that you discuss in the book, is it really possible for us as a people to make the changes that you suggest seamlessly, um, or is it going to take a little bit of work for us to understand the concepts and apply them in our life so that we can make the changes that you suggest? Okay, so let me approach this um, the following way. 
Um, we, we, when we finished up on Tai Chi, we forgot. To, I, I forgot to just add to you that Tai Chi is a Taoist art, and there are okay. other Taoist arts too. And this connects to the question you're asking me because there is a certain architecture to Taoist thinking. Taoists see the world and their enterprises a certain way. And the shape of Taoism, if, if we could say it that way, the rules, the structure of Taoism is that we begin inside us and we work on ourselves and we want to do certain work and it certainly is work. Um, there, there would be would be a disservice to our listeners to say that these things happen on their own or they, you know, they're, they're sort of airy-fairy woo-woo stuff that, you know, you just believe and manifest it by thinking about it all the time. No, there is work to do. And the Taoist prescription is tells you exactly how to do that work. And the manifesto is quite specific about this work. So let's think about it this way. We are a stone dropped into a pond. And when we drop into the pond, we create ripples that move outward from our point of impact. So, you know, the ripples first hit those closest to us. Mm -hmm. And then as they extend, they keep hitting things that are further and further away. But the other thing that happens is that the ripples expand. So the ones that are very close to us are small circles, but as they expand outward, they grow and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. So Mad Monk Manifesto is structured the way these ripples would go from a stone in the sense that first we make some changes to ourselves and then we see the effect that those changes have in our own life and in the lives of those people close to us. But if we keep on doing the work, then we begin to see the ripples effect go all the way out into our town, our country, our society, and eventually the natural world and the environment and everything around us. So if you ask me, you know, does the beginning of the book give prescriptions that we are to do for ourselves and work on ourselves, and is that hard work? Some of it is hard and some of it is easy, but it all takes focus and concentration. You have to pay attention to what you're doing. And one thing to remember is that in the world we live in now, which you earlier referred to as being speedy and greedy, I think. I, I, I call <laughs> yeah. it the speed, you know, the speed and greed sort of anti-culture you talked about in New York. And uh-huh. back when yeah. I was a kid being fast, it was a lot slower than it is now. And, and, and so um, the people who are pushing us, whether they are our bosses our politicians, our leaders, people who want us to move quickly, want us to move quickly because they do not want us thinking deeply about anything. Mm. When we think deeply about anything, we begin to question things. And the people in our world who are taking advantage of us, who do not have our best interests at heart, Rather, they have their own interests at heart. These people want things from us. They want our time. They want our money. They want our support. They want our belief. And if we stop and think, we may withdraw that support in whatever form we've given it. 
And that is exactly what existing institutions and certain people in our lives want from us. They want us not to think. They want us to just believe everything we're told and go along. And our world is full of fictions. And I don't mean that in a good way, right? Because fiction can be a wonderful thing. I'm a novelist. I love writing stories. I love telling stories. Our culture, our religions, our societies are full of stories for a reason. The human brain is wired for story. We respond well to information given to us in the form of stories. So like, you know, when you meet up with a friend that you haven't seen in a month or two, say, hey, well, what's going on? And what do they do? They don't give you bullet points about the things in their lives. They don't go one, boom, two, boom, three, boom. No, they're going to tell you, you know what happened to me the other day? You never believe who I am. Girl, let me tell you. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. Right. And then that's, and that, what, what, everything after girl, let me tell you, it's a story. Right. Yeah. Right. So so we we tell we believe in stories about ourselves, we believe in stories about our culture, about our country, about our world, about nature. And it's important to know the difference between story and reality. Story is a learning tool, it's a communications tool. It's something that we do to share, but it is no more real than to say that the word moon is the same thing as that heavenly body floating up there in the sky. They're not the same thing. So the stories we tell are important and useful, but we have to recognize that they were written by people. So whether we're talking about religion or we're talking about politics or we're talking about economics, all of these stories that were told were written by people. And their reality is only between our ears. And if our stories don't serve us, and whether they are the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are, who we want to be, who we are deep, deep down, what you know, our true self, what we really want or what we should have, or whether they're stories that we tell each other about our country and our world, they're still subject to analysis. And if they don't serve us, we have to be willing to let them go. Ooh. Wow. I'm writing that down. That is powerful. You know, you, wow. Wow. I'm blown away. You just had me thinking of all kind of stuff. It was just like, you know, from the moment we kind of did the little joking thing about, girl, let me tell you, with, which probably I I know I'm guilty of, and, and, you know, our friends are too, or whatever, but um, it, when I start thinking about, as you're talking about the stories, it's like I start thinking about all the interactions I have and, you know, just the interactions I've had in the past with, you know, when you particularly mention like a boss or something, you know, just work, 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 do, 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 produce, 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 produce. Um, and it was all about um, taking away taking my away my ability or preventing my ability to think deeply about whatever it is I was engaged in, wrapped up in doing for the sake of, you know, them having control. 
someone over me. And when you think about it, exactly. it's, it's total, they exactly. do, they have the control. But we don't see it that way. We see it as a context, so I need to work, I need to produce, my boss is on me. But it really, it just, wow, you just opened up an epiphany in my head. Well, so, like my so since, head is going to so explode good. with all this information. Uh, so let, let me so let me play on, on what you just said and take it a step further. You just used the word produce. So the word, mm-hmm. words progress and production are two that we often hear. And the strange thing is that those things involve the changing, the swapping, the exchanging of a non-renewable resource, something that we can never replace with a renewable resource. So money comes and goes. Money is a renewable resource. Mm-hmm. We spend it, we make it, right? If, if we're lucky, we get a job and we make it back. We spend too much, we go, okay, I can't for the next couple of months, I can't spend anything, I got to work hard and I got to build up my reserves again. Okay, that's something right. we can get back. Time is not. Right. So the trade of time for money is one of the most pernicious and cancerous things that we agree to and believe in in our lives. The Mm -hmm. idea that we should serve somebody else's interests with the one thing we can never get back, the one thing that is most precious to us, more precious than a fancy car, more precious than a corner office or a hot boyfriend, (laughs) <laughs> more pre- more more precious than uh, a big screen TV, right? The really mm-hmm. precious thing is our time. And I am not suggesting that we don't have to work to live because sometimes we do. But I am suggesting we don't have to live to work. And working to live means, you know, you work so that you have enough. You have some security, you know where your next meal is coming from. You know where you're going to sleep. And that is a far cry from the material frenzy that characterizes our anti-culture here in America, where all we think about is buying more stuff with money we don't have, mm-hmm. and all of that is stuff we don't need. So if we start to see all the places in our lives where we are making what our president at the time of this chat would call a bad deal, <laughs> right? We're making right. a lot of bad, we're making a lot of bad deals, but we're making them because we believe the stories we were told. We were sold a line of bunk and we bought it. And it's not because right. we're stupid. It's because it starts when we're little babies. We start here. You know, today I saw a woman, um, pushing a little baby along in a pram in a stroller, and mm-hmm. it was. And I saw this along the beach on a on a beach walk, and the baby was looking around and looking at the seagulls and the ocean, and all of a sudden the mom or nanny I don't know who it was, but the caretaker took a cell phone and put it in these this baby's hands. Oh. All of a sudden the baby stopped looking at the beach, stopped looking at the ocean started looking at that terrible little screen that rules us all. And and I thought, okay, well, so what chance is that baby ever going to have? 
if its right. brain is being addicted to that thing right now already, right. so young, so we're we're being we're being controlled and processed by these stories we're told by the technology, and by the way. You know, people accuse me of being anti-technology, and I suppose on some level that's true. But I'm mm-hmm. not anti-science, right? right. Science is right. the inquiry that we we want science. We've got to know how the world works. We love science. Taoists are scientists. We want to understand how things work. We've got to ask questions and try to find answers. But, you know, there's kind of a bastard child of science is technology. And, you know, when it helps us bring water from the ground so we can drink, or plant crops so we can eat, that's great. But when right. it has us, you know, producing a new kind of, you know, personal electronic device for some people in Asia to make billions on us, um, you know, every every week, um, right. then, you know, maybe not, maybe not so much, right? Not so much. There's no you know, such thing as too much scientists, but too much tech, yes. You know, really, really interesting point that you shared or uh, an observation because I see that all the time with people today and their kids, these little kids, two years old, still in the stroller, being given iPads or some kind of computer device. And uh, as a form of entertainment, there's no more parent interaction with the children. You know, like when I want to say when we were growing up, you know, you went to the doctor's office, your parents interacted with you, they talked to you, they taught you, you know, how to behave, whatever the case may be. Um, nowadays, you see these people out with their kids, there's no interaction. You'll see people at dinner and they pull out their cell phone. The kids got their little electronic device. The parents are on their cell phones. There's no interaction, and everybody is caught up in this fantasy world on social media that, oh, my gosh, she's doing that, or he's doing that, or he's got that, or he drives that, or she's, you know, they're here, they're there. It's a fantasy thing that, oh, they start feeling bad. I'm not do, I'm not living up to what my story should be. I, if their story is like that, my story should be bad. And it's just this perpetual thing that is just, it's just, it just mind boggles me. And I, I'm just like, I'm so glad that I raised kids prior to all of this technology coming out because I think kids are going to grow up. They're going to be socially inept. They're not going to know how to socialize with people on a one-on-one basis. And as you said, all these stories that are fed into this little handheld thing that people cannot break their addiction from, literally anything can be fed into that and a story that's believed by those that see it and they will believe it's reality because why not? It's got to be real. It appeared on this device. So I'm totally with you on that. I think technology is great in aspects, but, you know, I come from an age where, you know, people just started, we were just flying to the moon, you know, and so um, kids played outside and, they interacted, and if you had a dis- disagreement with your neighbor down the street, you may have had a fist fight or whatever, or, but you went on about your way, and then the next day you're playing. I mean, it's just so different with all these stories, and I think technology has accelerated that astronomical with regards to this false reality that people now feel that they need to live. Um, and I, I want to trans. oh, my gosh, this is so good. I want to transcend into um, – 
you know, as I heard you speaking about technology and the evolution of, of things as we see these fake stories and these stories that we're told uh, starting when we're very young that are not actually or may not actually be true, um, I detect a little bit, just a little hint of anger or, as we should say, madness. And I know in the manifesto you, you share a little bit about that. So can you just... Um, can you just enlighten us, enlighten us listeners, as to why you do you think that right now in our day and age, I'm going to just say American people are just so angry? So let's go back to the little kid for a minute, and okay. let's work our way. Let's work our way back to this question. I'll see it because you hit so very many things. Let me see if I can find a path through this forest that we can follow together. So when you said when you said that the that the parents were giving the kids the phone as a palliative, as it's more or less like um, like a binky, right? They're giving like a the kids something to yes. shut them up, right? Like a pacifier. That's the word I want. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So so why why do they want the kid pacified? Because they're looking at their own phones and they don't want to take the time to, to, to be, to interact with the kid exactly as you described. So, right? so, so, so we're, here we are wandering through the forest trying to make sense of, of all this. So wh- why is that? Why are the parents so addicted to those devices and to the social media version of the world? And, and the answer is, that there is a kind of a rolling snowball. And the the thing that kicked the snowball off the edge of the cliff and let it roll down or down the side of the mountain, what, what, what kicked it off was this material society which substitutes human interactions, satisfaction, personal development, relationships, accomplishments, effort and reward, and the experiences of real life, and takes those away and gives us instead a hyper-material society where we value each other only based on what we have or what advantage the other person will give to us. Mm-hmm. So we have a very, very sick deeply, deeply sick society. And the result of that sickness is that people are so alienated, disenfranchised, unhappy, disconnected one from the other, lacking in real deep relationships with intimacy, touch, validation, appreciation, that there is so much suffering in our culture. We really saw it in the last election but it's around us, and it's been here a long time. And it started with this, you know, with these values. We lost the values of integrity and idealism and compassion, and instead we substituted this country became a marketplace, and capitalism and material gain became the thing that everybody wanted, and everything else died. And so the result is that because we are not computers or abacuses or, or uh, calculators, but we are feeling beings, 
spiritual and emotional beings, and emotions are always stronger than thoughts, then we're at sea. And because we suffer so much, we look for something to take the pain away. Some people use drugs for this. Some people use, whether they're opioids or alcohol, some people use destructive behaviors like anger that give them a momentary rush that dull the pain. When you're angry, you can't be sad. Anger right. feels better feels better than profound sadness does. Some people, young men in particular these days, are so addicted to these role-playing games on the computer. Why? Because they are communicating with people around the world on these on these forums, on these on these game boards, and and they they do things in these games. They accomplish things. They they go on quests. They have fights. People applaud them. They get reputations. They do everything that the real world could and used to and should provide for them, but now doesn't. And so the reason why the parent is addicted is that the parent is angry because the parent doesn't want to feel sad. The parent is distracted because his or her attention span has been destroyed by little blinking lights that keep rewarding it like a rat in an experiment. And we are all being totally and completely manipulated. So if you hear, you know, me sounding sad or angry or upset about that, of course I do. What what person wouldn't once you see it? Um, you know, there's a wonderful bumper sticker that I've seen around, which says, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, this is very true. This is very true. You, you should, we must be outraged about these things. But, you know, this is not the kind of anger that, you know, this is not beat your spouse anger. This is not get into a street fight or a bar fight anger. This is anger that is fuel for change in ourselves and in our culture. Wow. Heavy. Um, again, full of a ton of information, um, lots of nuggets of gold, things to make you ponder just life right now and how we're living our life and all the stuff that's gone on around us. And, you know, it kind of has me thinking, like, like who really is controlling my life? Every time I pick up my cell phone now and I happen to click or punch or not punch, tap the app for whatever it is, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, whatever it may be, I'm going to be now a little bit more cognizant about it because, you know, for one, it can be a huge time waster, time sucker. Two, it's time I can't get back. Three, I'm feeding into the stories of the people that are posting as well. And four, it's not really, um, it's not really therapeutic for my mind. That's how I want to live my life. Um, so this has just been very, very enlightening and unfortunately we're all, we're at the end of our time and we just, we just scratched the surface but oh my yeah, god I'm just like thinking you know wow I could spend days just you know um, talking to you and, and 
just absorbing the wonderful information that you have in your brain that, you know, just comes out with such with such practicality. It's like almost, I feel like a sponge and I'm just soaking it all up. I'm taking notes. I've got like four or five pieces of paper here filled with notes because it it is what you're saying is true and it's just very interesting. But there's something I do want you to talk about before we go and I am a huge fan of it and I've been um I've been doing it for quite a ooh, ooh, I ate myself for about over four decades. Um, and when I first started doing it, I didn't know what I was doing. I just know I just wanted to feel better inside. And that particular thing is um, meditation. And I know you advocate meditation. And in my career as a nurse and a, a nurse practitioner, holistic nurse practitioner, um, I would do meditation with my patients. I'm glad I'm not practicing clinically now, but um, with my patients, I was an emergency room trauma nurse, and I would literally do meditations with patients that um, were having heart attacks or, or things of that nature, and I would really literally see changes occur within an instant of us doing something with regards to how they're feeling, their symptoms, what was going on with them. And so, I mean, I, I'm so into it, but I know you're a huge advocate with, when it comes to medication. Is there a particular medication, a medication, meditation style that um, you prefer, that you like, um, any words of wisdom that you would like to share about? meditation, please feel free to disseminate upon us your wisdom. So for people who don't really know what meditation is, let me just say that it's exercise for the mind. So we all understand that there are many, many different kinds of exercise. And when you read uh, these, you know, uh, news stories that come out about how essential exercise is for your health, those stories don't say, you know, it's only true if you play ping pong. It's only true if you run. It's only true if you swim. It's only true if you rock climb or play ball. All those things say, is, you know, you just got to get your heart rate up and use your body. And, you know, I say in my Mad Monk Manifesto that sitting is the new smoking and that the human body is built to move. So we understand uh, the physical ideas of, of Exercise, but we don't so often speak of the mental aspect of meditation. So one bridge to meditation, and I very rarely hear anybody put things this way, is to start reading books. So remember, as we've just been discussing for the last 45 minutes, our brains have been trained away from deep thinking and focus. What we'll find is that when you first try to read a book, and I suggest you pick one that is of intense interest to you, either a nonfiction book about your greatest passion in life, whatever that may be, or the kind of novel, the kind of story that you just love to read, love to watch on TV, just get a, just get a, or see in the movies, get a book version of that. So if it's a thriller or a romance or whatever it is, pick the thing that you like best. And then try to slow down your mind using entertainment to begin to develop your concentration. And then after that, 
when you've done that for a month or two, you can try to find some meditation class. So I, instead of saying, you know, what meditation I think is best, that's like saying, you know, which sport is best. Everybody right. has something that um, resonates more with them than other things, their favorite thing. You know, um, you know, if you're four foot ten, um, you're probably not going to choose basketball. You might, but, prob- but you know, probably not, right? So, 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 I mean, there are things that are there are things that are you know just suited to us that we like that we gravitate towards, and so the important thing is not so much which kind of meditation do you do because there's many, many ones just like there are different sports and activities and games, um, but but find a class or a center or a place where meditation is taught near you. Right, so in a place geographically that is um, doable for you, that is that makes sense, that's practical for you, so that you can actually go there. So we could spend ten more shows just talking about Taoist meditation. It's something that I teach all over the world, mm. but I don't want to advocate for that kind of meditation over any other right now because the important thing is just to start quieting the mind and focusing the mind in the way that any basic meditation practice focuses on your breath. And, and there, there are many ways to, to do this. So that's kind of a whole other show. But the, the yes. practical advice I have is find a place near you, a place that you will actually go to and won't, you know, you won't use as an excuse that it's snowing and it's, you know, 26 miles away. Um, some place that you can walk to or take a short drive to. And, and then, and then, you know, you'll find these places in hospitals and um, Buddhist temples and senior centers and, um, all, you know, civic centers, all kinds of places have meditation now. Wow. Thank and you there are so online much. programs, too. Yeah. yeah, there's a ton. That, yeah, there's a, there's a ton that you can access. And, but thank you so much. I love how you said that meditation is exercise for the mind. People forget that you know, if your mind is not healthy and fit, well, what's in your mind disseminates down into your body and vice versa. So if you exercise your body, you have to exercise your mind to keep things flowing optimally in your in your mind as well. So thank you for sharing your words of wisdom with regards to meditation because it's a favorite of mine and uh, it's helped me in so many areas of my life and I'm a huge advocate for it and um and so um, there you have it, you guys. We have had a phenomenal, very enlightening, awakening, thought-provoking show with Monk Yoon Ro. And I feel so honored and blessed to be able to bring him to all of you so that you could also enjoy the words of wisdom that he shared. And you guys, you just don't know, we just touched, barely just a st- touched to scratch the surface of what there's, what he could have shared with us. There's so much more. I'd probably have to do, have to, if I ever get a television show, I'm going to bring you on and we're going to do a series of shows. But um, <laughs> it would be just great, you know, to do that because um, there's so much, in my mind, so there's so much, so, so much negativity in the world, and we don't ever hear about positivity or how we can keep our minds from getting caught up in the rapture of all the false stories and chaos and, you know, caught up in the whole money-making and greed and all that materialism and, you know, reality crap that's not really reality. 
Um, and so to have someone unlike he that just disseminated truth, point blank, no no sugarcoating it, but to the point where it was so awakening and so enlightening, I really want to thank you. So thank you so much for being a guest on Blissful Living. Thank you very much for having me. It was great fun. Before we go, I just want Monk Yoon Ro to share with you all how you guys can get in contact with him, find out more about him, where he's speaking, where he's teaching, and definitely pick up a copy of the book he wrote, which you're just absolutely going to love, the manifesto we've been talking about. Doc, uh, Dr. Monk Yoon Ro, can you please share with the listeners as to how they can get in contact with you and find out more information about how they can pick up the Mad Monk Manifesto? So Mad Monk Manifesto is available uh, pretty much anywhere you buy books. It's, of course, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble online, uh, and you can have your local bookstore order it if they don't have it. Um, my website, where you can find more about the manifesto, you can order it through the website and also find out uh, where I'm teaching and speaking and about my other books because I've written uh, – I'm working on number 18 right now, so there's quite a few other books. Uh, the website is monk, M-O-N-K, Yun, Y-U-N-R-O-U, so M-O-N-K-Y-U-N-R-O-U.com. And I'm on Twitter at, at Monk Yun Ro, Y-U-N-R-O-U. So that's, uh, I'm not on Facebook, um, I'm just on Twitter, uh, and that's the way to find me. Perfect. Okay, you guys. <clears throat> So there you have it, listeners. You can pick up the book, Mad Monk Manifesto, A Prescription for Evolution, Revolution, and Global Awakening at Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com, or you can go into your local bookstore and have them order it for you. I know a lot of bookstores will do that. Um, if they're not the big Barnes & Nobles, you can definitely do that. Or you can check in out on his website at Monk. Yunro.com, and that's spelled M like Mary, O, N like Nancy, K, Y, U, N like Nancy, R, O, U.com. Follow him on Twitter at the at sign Monk Yunro, and I know he would be happy if you said you heard him on Blissful Living or if you sent a message to him and said, gee, you heard him on Bushel Living and you're picking up the book. Definitely a book you want to pick up. You will not be disappointed. I have um, my copy that I'm looking at right now and been perusing through, couldn't wait to do this interview and have this conversation. So if you don't do anything else for yourself today, go out to the bookstore or go online and order the Mad Monk Manifesto. And with that, my friends, I'd like to say thanks again to Monk Yoon Ro for being a guest on Blissful Living and to thank all of you for listening, joining us, and sharing your time with us. I want to wish you all peace to your mind, wellness to your body, and tranquility to your spirit as you travel down your path to bliss. I want to thank our sponsors, BlissfulLivingForYou.com and AllDayCableInc.com. And until next time, be healthy, wealthy, 
and use your time very wisely. This is the Queen of Feeling Fabulous, Rochelle Marie Lawson, saying take care and goodbye for now, everyone. You can find out more about Rochelle on her website, Rochelle Lawson, R-O-C-H-E-L-E Lawson, L-A-W-S-O-N, or at healthhealingwellness.com. Or just click on her websites from the webtalkradio.net page right in front of you. And, of course, you'll want to come right back here next week for another episode of Blissful Living. Thanks for joining us.